0: Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Yuri Kim of Forerunner Ventures, which without a doubt is one of the world's top VC firms formed over the last decade. The firm invests in entrepreneurs who are redefining culture and consumer experiences in today's digital world, and they've invested in companies such as Jet, Birchbox, Warby Parker, and Curology. Prior to joining Forerunner, Yuri founded Maven, a luxury accessories brand, and also worked as a consultant at Bain. This episode was such a treat for me as I've known the Forerunner team since the early days, and it was so fun to go back through the evolution and the growth of the firm. Now let's get into the episode to hear how Forerunner was able to build into the global brand it is now. This week of Venture Unlock is brought to you by Passer. Raising a fund is hard enough without the additional friction of the complex subscription agreement process that makes it so difficult for investors to easily sign up. Enter Passthrough, which automates the fund closing process. It takes any subscription agreement and builds a fully digital custom workflow where your investors only see the questions that matter to them. It's so simple that investors can now sign up for private funds in less than five minutes. Passthrough also makes it easy for fund managers and legal counsel to manage and track the entire process. To move into the next generation of digital fund closing, head over to passthrough.com forward slash Samir to learn more. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high limit corporate credit card and a no fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily. So you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast, with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, you'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. Yuri, so great to see you, and thanks for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you for inviting me, Samir.
0: So it feels like just yesterday when Forerunner One was getting off the ground, and I remember the first fund being roughly $40 million back in 2012, I've been looking forward to this conversation because I love going down memory lane. And I want to go back to 2012, maybe even 2011. You had experience as a consultant. You had started a company within... Luxury Goods, and ultimately started Forerunner with Kirsten back in 2012. Tell us about that key shared insight that the two of you had at the time you started the firm, and how did this all come together?
1: Well, I mean, I can't, I can't take credit for the birth of Forerunner. That is Kirsten. She's the, the mother of the you know, being that we are today, but I did join her before we closed Fund One, uh, which was probably, I like to think of it as my best venture investment yet. You know, what was the insight? So at the time, I was in consulting, working at Bain here in San Francisco after business school, really working with the larger players, trying to understand e commerce and what was it? And all these new companies are popping up. What do we do? And there was really a shift in competitive dynamics that we were thinking about from the larger company perspective. And I got connected to Kirsten through a business school um, classmate of mine, one of my closer friends. And she was angel investing in the space. She was investing in the companies that I knew of because they were being started by my friends or old colleagues or, you know, just folks that I knew in the ecosystem. And so when we met, it was just really a connection over understanding that there was so much consumer behavioral change happening with, you know, the iPhones being, you know, really proliferating at that time and social media really hitting a critical mass. It wasn't even the beginnings of Instagram at the time. This was like kind of when Facebook and Twitter were the only game in town. So it's just, it feels like a lifetime ago. And it really was. The new customer, this millennial was really different. And it was because of of digital fluency. It was because they were immersed in social media. And those two things really led to a path of purchase that was different than any generation before. And ultimately that led to white space because all the traditional brands and players and mom and pops, like everybody in the ecosystem didn't know what to do. They didn't didn't know if it was a thing, like if it was just a fad, it's a feature. In reality, it became a new way of life. You know, we often talk about the time before this particular moment that there was such a sea change in the consumer industry was really the rise of the malls in the 90s. You had a new distribution channel because you had this whole place where everybody would go after school or on the weekends and congregate and socialize and go into these stores and browse. And that was the rise of multiple huge publicly traded companies in the the specialty retail space. And so in the same way, the internet and social media was a whole new distribution channel and a new place to congregate. And a result, a new place for companies to be born. And so that was the insight. Kirsten had it in her own right and was starting to invest in it. I was formulating it in my own right, thinking about it from different angles. And so, uh, you know, when I heard her thesis, it was just exactly what I wanted to be a part of. And so I joined Kirsten before what was that May of 2012. And we closed our first fund in July of 2012. And it's been almost 10 years.
0: Which is amazing to think how quickly things have gone. But yet, how much has changed during that decade, and some of the initial thesis you have, which today in hindsight seems so obvious that you know the world and commerce and consumer uh, behavior is going to change at that time. I don't think it was as obvious. if you looked at where venture capital was going to, there was a lot of blind spots as it related to investing in the type of companies forerunner has been known to invest in. Why do you think there was such a gap in? What were some of the things acting as limiting factors for some of these founders that were looking for capital, getting it from what at the time was, you know, a very small cottage industry of firms that were investing across different sectors?
1: I think the biggest gap in um, where people saw the opportunity was really in thinking about the stability of the business model. It wasn't just that retail companies were selling online. There were new companies from the beginning that were going to have different paths to scale. In the offline world, it's very simple to figure out how you're going to grow a company. If it has stores, there's four wall economics, there's a cost to build out a store, and there's how fast you can open those stores. And it's somewhat linear. You don't get exponential growth. And the miss was that if you didn't see social networking and social media as a place that really changed the pace with which you could acquire customers from being linear to exponential, then you wouldn't have seen that these sorts of companies, whether it's product businesses and brands or whether they're marketplaces or whether they're technologies to power Experiences that consumers are demanding online, you wouldn't have seen that. You would have thought, oh, this is just store hundred or store 10 and it happens to be the e-comm site. And that's where we actually spent a lot of time trying to educate our LPs and our um, you know, the other people in our network, where e-commerce is commerce. It's everything. What what transaction happens now in our world that isn't digital? So that was the vision that we ultimately had our thesis in, and it just took a while for people to understand that when you think consumer, you might think Warby Parker glasses or you know away suitcases or glossier makeup. But consumer is all of us, and all the different ways that we interact in our lives are consumer experiences and in fund one, I mean we were you know in the seed round of chime, it's a fintech company, but we saw that opportunity as not it's fintech, quote unquote, you know, with the air quotes right now, but it was the original pitch was about consumers who hated their banking experience. It was literally the worst NPS category, maybe below, the only thing it was above was maybe like airlines and money is super important. And the millennial just wanted a different place that they trusted, that understood them, that could speak their language. And that was the beginnings of what Chime ultimately, you know, kind of came to market with. And obviously now it's a lot more, but you have to start somewhere. And that was the opportunity that was there. There was a gap. And I think the other thing is that the reality of who the consumer is, is actually it's the majority of the dollars are spent by women. And most investors at that time were still men. And so they didn't think that it was important to understand the consumer experience, and they didn't see that the behavior was changing and that people's priorities were changing. So I think it was that orientation of really consumer insights, consumer behavior, psychology, to understand the why a company might really connect with their audience versus the, the what, which is like a, a case study. There's a big market. Here's the dynamics. Like The analysis of it is great and all, but if you don't understand like why is someone going to care about it? Then ultimately, that's what we have to do every day is to figure out which one is actually going to make it versus all the others had a good case study, too. I mean, there's definitely plenty of losers for every winning company that there is in a market.
0: As you were going through that, it reminded me of something that I've seen over the last uh, 20 years in that LPs investing in funds that are either consumer or commerce related tend to have this inherent belief that investing in those type of funds is much more risky than a traditional enterprise software fund given at least the perception that there's more binary outcomes and going back to 2012 as you were raising fund 1 which of course was very quick it was only it sounded like it was only 3 months i'm curious if you ran into those objections and perhaps how did you find the reception Of going out with the Commerce Fund at that time?
1: It was a challenge. It was a challenge. There were some LPs that invested early because they believed in specialists. And they said, you can't invest all the dollars into enterprise. There's got to be something that's on the other side. And so if we're going to invest in that space, we want to do it early. We want to do it with specialists. And so we were the right thesis-driven firm that um, they had confidence in. But there were so many conversations where we had to answer the question, is the consumer opportunity big enough? And we kept thinking, how is that a question? Is Amazon not a consumer business? You know, is eBay not a consumer business? These are, you know, massive organizations, massive uh, market caps. And again, at the time, this was still 10 years ago, so they, they, they weren't even as big as they are today. But it was really a disconnect. I remember there was one slide that I made for a deck that was literally 60 pages, Samir, on answering this question. Because we felt so, so confused as to why people didn't see the opportunity as clearly as we did. And there was this one slide I made that said, there's what people buy, there's where they buy, and then there's how they buy. But all of this is commerce. And I think everybody was so stuck for the first five to seven years on the what. They expected that Forerunner was only investing in product-based businesses and brands. But even in Fund One, as I mentioned, Chime was a fintech company. Hotel Tonight is a marketplace, on-demand marketplace. Um, Retention Science was a email marketing and optimization platform, um, a retention platform. There were so much um, diversity in the business models that we were investing in but i think in the beginning the halo that we got from the sexy brands that you know pr loved to cover like that's where people that's where we built our name and so you're not going to say you don't do that we did do that but in every portfolio of 25 to 30 companies we actually only invest in two or three direct to consumer brands and so if someone thought that what we meant by being consumer investors was just physical product branded companies then i would understand why they thought the market was somewhat like limited and it's still big right there's still multiple massive businesses publicly traded nike lululemon like these are just product businesses that are tens of billions of dollars in market cap so you could still build a portfolio of just that but that is not what we came to market with we were really thinking about it holistically and so you know we spent probably three funds really needing to to show to educate to prove What we meant when we said we wanted to own commerce, early-stage commerce, now we don't need to explain that as much because I think people realize it. Even now in enterprise businesses, if you don't understand who's the end consumer, we have an investment in a company called Narvar. Well, it sells to brands and retailers so that you can have your post-purchase experience, but who's at the end of that experience? It's you and me waiting for our package, wondering where our return is. And so that is where I think people have finally realized, aha, the power of the dollar is in the person that's spending it. And even if you're selling to enterprise, there's somebody at the company who is a consumer who is signing the document or the invoice for Slack or for, you know, whatever B2B productivity tool you have. And I think that's that's really accelerated people's interest and understanding of how to invest in consumer. And so now a lot more people are comfortable with it.
0: It's really important insight. And I think it's something that a lot of sector-focused firms historically ran into in in terms of being able to get investors to really understand because investors, in many cases, were looking at this particular strategy as very vertical in nature, right? This is consumer, whereas the commerce opportunity is incredibly horizontal in nature.
1: Just on that, it's even in the public markets when it used to be that tech and telecom was like its own thing. And it was like the retail stock Stocks, the airline stocks, the banking stock, everything was like a different functional area or category. And then now you realize, like, well, technology is everywhere. So how are you, how do you piece them out? And it's the same thing that happened. It's just, it's pervasive. And so we'll see a lot more of that to come. But, you know, that's exactly right. When you sort of silo everything, then, you know, really you would imagine we're retail investors. But I don't even know if we've invested in, Jet.com was the only retail company we've, we've really invested in. Most of the companies we have sell their own stuff um, or their marketplaces in some some way.
0: And I think what happens often with, and this is just human behavior, is we have the propensity to, to want to put everything in neat little boxes so, our, so we can understand them. And sometimes it's hard to underwrite to what the future looks like and what we're actually you know investing in. And you know, you mentioned this before. I mean, the technology is completely horizontal. It's ubiquitous. And I remember even talking to some of the folks that were doing fintech at the time. And the questions would come to those investors. And I'm sure Ribbit and QED and some others had this. Is fintech big enough? And of course, now it sounds like a silly question. But fintech, for example, is across so many different categories. And I know commerce is too. So you had this clarity of, hey, this is the way the world is going. It's so clear to us. Did you have a similar view of what? type of trajectory you wanted forerunner to be i know fun one was seed fund 40 million if i were sitting in a room with you and kirsten back in 2012 and you had this blank sheet of paper of what does forerunner look like over the years how much clarity did you have at the time
1: first and foremost kirsten always wanted to have a team There was never a circumstance in which she wanted to be a sole GP or kind of 2GP situation, which I think there are a lot of people who want that. and, And that's great. It's a different path. But she brought me on board before we closed fund one for a reason. She didn't necessarily need to, but she wanted to work with a team. And that is the DNA that we always built the team with. So we had clarity of wanting to build a firm that is going to last. It's not going to be around and then whenever Kirsten and I decide to retire, it's going to be done. It's just not what we set out for. Um, We never set out to start a seed fund. That was not ever in the pitch. We had to start there because you had to start somewhere. And the opportunities that were in the market that we were interested in were at the seed stage. So it all made sense at the time. It was early enough in the sort of trajectory of, of the market trend. But we had always positioned our desire to be the best early stage investors. The definition of early today has really broadened. I'm not going to comment better or worse, it's just broadened. So, you know, if there is an exceptional team that's out there raising a $25 million seed round, we should be a part of that but at a 40 million dollar seed fund you're not going to you're not going to do that round. So I do think that our strategy was set from the earliest days on building a firm, not a fund, scaling into whatever the market opportunities are for consumer and commerce broadly speaking, not for stage focus and we continue to have that. We still want to be early. We're not we like the relationship building, the company building, all the things that go along with being early. But nowadays, I mean, you could be at your series B and you still haven't launched a product, right? So not everything's going to get funded if, if that's the scenario, but there are some environments where there's so much R&D or there's so much sort of technology being built that it's It's two years in the making before it launches, but, you know, we'll be, we'll be invested in, actually the yes is a company that Julie Bornstein started. We were her, you know, first investor. It is, it took two years to get to launch because it's so technologically complicated and you needed everything to be working before you fully had the experience up and and running. So I, with all the managers out there starting funds, really having a vision for, for what you're trying to build is important because then it also picks, it, it gives you a filter for what kind of LPs you need. I remember early on when Kirsten and I were talking, she'd always wanted to have institutional investors because she wanted to have multiple funds. There are other folks who build their first fund with friends and family or individuals, and they're happy to do that every three years. So again, it's different kind of motivations and different aspirations for success. It's it's a lot of what we ask our founders when we invest in them. It's like, what what does success look like for you? And for many people in venture, it's just I want to have a, you know, great return or I want to be able to have a 10x fund. But our vision and our goal was always to have a firm that would be the best at what we do and would outlive us and hopefully be, you know, one of the Sequoias and the Andreessons in the next 30 years.
0: I'd love to double click on that because when you invest in an early stage company, ultimately, while you are looking at things like TAM and you're looking at the opportunity and the problem set, ultimately it comes down to the founding team and their ability to attract talent, be able to solve problems, be resilient. And from an LP's perspective, especially an institutional LP. When I invest in a fund one, let's say, I'm looking at fund two and fund three, and how much capital can I deploy behind a certain manager? And the key function of creating a lasting firm is talent acquisition and retention. And so as you and Kirsten were thinking about, the two of you obviously had, you know, this incredible bond in the early days where you saw eye to eye. But as you bring people, you want to have some kind of foundational ethos of the type of people you bring, what are the non-negotiables? Can you tell us about those first few hires and how did you think about getting the right people?
1: I actually will even step back a minute and say that most venture firms, or at least now I think they think about it more, but in those days, thinking about your own firm team building was not necessarily top of mind. It was about raising funds and making investments. I've been in finance my whole career. Um, even within consulting, is consulting for financial investors. Financiers, investors are not good managers. That's not what we're trained to do. Consultants are very good managers because that is what we're trained to do. And thankfully, I have a you know Bain background where, I mean, that is what we did. We had teams and we had professional development and we looked for certain types of people who could grow an apprentice uh, and have an apprenticeship model. And so this was really important. I think Kirsten really valued my experiences here in thinking about how do we bring in smart, capable people onto the team but still maintain a very clear culture and a clear point of view? There are some firms where every single person on the team might blog and have, you know, different topics that they're thinking about and it's it's really interesting because they might be wildly like different. And it doesn't really make sense to put all of them under one banner, but In being so diverse, that is the banner, that it's like everyone here has a unique thought and it's all very disparate and it doesn't need to coordinate. We always felt like there's a forerunner signature mentality. There's a way we make investments. There's a type of founder that we like to back. And it's not so prescriptive, but rather it's like an ethos, I think is the word you used. But number one, everybody involved in Forerunner, our network, our founders, our team, our partners, we have a pulse on the consumer and we care about the consumer in a way that's like deeper and more emotional. And that transfers over to the types of relationships you build because this is a relationship business. Everyone thinks it's a financial business. It's really a relationship business. So if you don't understand people and you can't communicate and you can't feel and intuit what's happening in the market from a behavioral standpoint, then you won't be able to see things ahead of the math. Because by the time there's like numbers to look at, it's already happened. And our job is to be there before it happens. And so that's where we feel like understanding people, having that deep sense of um, relatability, partnership promise that we have. Like, these are the things that we seek. Um, Nicole was our first hire, and she actually emailed me asking about advice for a job at one of the burgeoning DTC brands at the time. And... She was so smart she her her major was psychology at Princeton, so she she she'll even tell the story as saying, "I didn't even know what venture was like i, I didn't know I don't know I could ever get a job at venture because how do you graduate with psychology degree and then go into venture capital?" But as we were talking, it was so clear that she was so analytical, so smart, but really on the pulse of the millennial, which you know she was squarely a millennial, and she understood all of the companies that we were looking at and had a perspective on it and so instead of giving her sound advice on that other job, I said, hey, how about you work at Forerunner? And she said, I don't, like, is that, is that, is that possible? Like, really? And, and we were thrilled to have somebody who had a different way of thinking. The, the fourth member of our team was KJ Sipri. And I remember he emailed me cold. He was at BCG at the time, a couple of years out of school. And he has an engineering background. And he had read the article that came out about uh, Forerunner, Kirsten, right around the time of the Dollar Shave Club and the Jet.com acquisitions that all happened within the same month in 2016. It was a real pivotal moment for Forerunner because here's this sort of you know upstart firm. And then we were really the only firm that was invested in both of those consumer outcomes. And they were both meaningful outcomes. I mean, billions of dollars now doesn't sound as fancy, but back then it really still was quite novel. And anyhow, so he had that, he had read that article and he emailed me and he just had so much enthusiasm for what we were doing. And I have to admit, part of me, I think I even emailed back, I I, I was like, so you know that we are a team of women. We're not only hiring women. So I will say that we'd love to talk to you, but I just want to make sure you know that like in case it was lost on you. and. He was so excited because he thought, this is so different. This is exactly why I want to come here and talk to you. Is there a way for me to work with you? I think this is super dope, is I think exactly the word he used. And and we loved it because we thought, again, what voice do we not have around the table? And in a strange way, the one that was missing was a male voice. And we're like, well, half the opportunities we're seeing, the demographic is still going to be a male consumer. So we'd like to understand and have some context for some of, you know, what those trends might be. And that's how we've built the team over time, uh, certainly on the investment side, where we look for diversity of thought and experiences, different consumer types that we can represent around the table, and really just this um, inner cultural beat that it's hard to express. But we just hired three amazing um, analysts on the team earlier this year and ran a whole process about it. I think my partner, Brian, had written a blog post about how we were really trying to, you know, Get outside the usual suspects, worm contacts. You know, we wanted to really be wide about the funnel, and you know, we're so proud of the way the team is coming together. Because even in a COVID environment, Zoom, what have you, that like human touch. When you meet them, you'll know exactly that they're foreigner, foreigner people, and I think that that's what we really um, hold close to us, and we're really proud of. And it's just, it it requires every single person to prioritize, you know, integrity of our relationships. Like we do what we say we're going to do. We write back to every email, you know, we show up. And surprisingly, that doesn't always happen in this very busy environment.
0: When you go through that, it it seems like a very simple formula of, you know, creating the right type of culture. And what you and I both know is to create a multi-generational firm it's really tough to do. And we've seen very few firms be successful in creating durability of talent and fostering new talent. And I've seen the good, bad, and the ugly. And there are so many firms that have failed to be generational firms because they fail at the human resources part of the business, which is so, so uh, important, especially in today's market. Are there things that, and, and I know you can't speak to why things haven't worked at other firms, but I, I'm curious. If you were to distill down to one or two things that have allowed Forerunner to create this real durability of the culture, create the Forerunner way, and having the right people that really understand directionally how they are going to be part of this long-term business, what are the one or two things that you attribute to being the most successful tactics?
1: The one thing that we always hold true is it's one team. Kirsten always says, one team, one dream. And it's true because if you really are a team, for example, we don't have attribution. Now, it's obvious everybody remembers, you know, who brought in a deal or who's on the board or what have you. But over the course of seven to 10 years, which is the relationship that, you know, we have with our founders and teams, there may be very good reason for a different partner at Forerunner to take over the primary responsibilities for that company. I remember there was one company that Kirsten had invested in and what they needed at the time was something I, I knew how to do. And so I took over their board seat. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities, obviously, from a portfolio standpoint where we work together. We usually have um, two to three people on each portfolio pod. But you know, based on who's got the best expertise to offer, we do allow for different people to get that experience and that exposure such that each portfolio company, each founding team it's not just Yuri. It's not just Kirsten. Like they know the whole foreigner team. They know Annie, they know Jenna, they literally know everybody. And I think that's what um, creates the all hands attitude. Like it is hard to instill the team mentality if you hire people who are I people like, and you can, you can actually filter for that because they're, they're incredible in their own way, but they should be at a firm where they can do whatever they want and they can write about whatever they want, and they can invest in whatever they want. But that person's not going to be happy here because we have a coordinated effort with what we're trying to do. And our portfolio marries together beautifully. Each deal complements the other deal. If Brian does a deal that's a super early stage seed deal, then Nicole Nicole's deal might end up being a series B to balance it out. So it's always this like artful Collaboration that we have. And it's like not always perfect. I mean, you still have like disagreements and stuff. It doesn't mean just because you're a functioning team, you, you always agree and like nobody has any, you know, uh, altering opinions. But that there's a communication pathway that allows for you to look at, okay, I might want to do this, but is it really good for foreigner? Like, how is it good for foreigner? Oh, okay, this is why it's good for foreigner. And that's what we train as like a mental model. And I just, I don't think it's common in venture because that's just not an apprenticeship sort of training program that is common in finance. It's much more kind of rooted in where I grew up and I learned how to train people and and apprentice them all the way through the experience such that by the time somebody, you know, junior becomes a partner, they've actually seen and done all these things with us. And so they have the backup and the confidence to continue that forward. But then as a result, you pay it forward, right? Like then we have new analysts and they're going to get trained all the way through. But we we really feel like the only way to sustain a firm and sustain a team is to constantly invest in your team and, you know, to be able to share those experiences. I mean, one thing I'm so grateful for Kirsten is that when it was just her and her and me, she's actually a a really external processor. So we'll just sit in the room and she'll be going through all of these things that she's experiencing. And so I was literally learning alongside with her on a lot of the things that I hadn't had experience in because I didn't have a venture background. I had a private equity investing background. I had a consulting background. I was a founder. But that's still different than investing in early stage companies. And so even though, you know, I was joining in at that same time, I was able to learn quickly alongside with her. And I think that, was the beginnings of this mentality that we have. And so I don't know. I think a lot of the other teams that I I hear frustrations about are really because there is less support of the team. And it's like, everyone feels like I got to do a deal. I got I to gotta get my allocation. I got to like show my returns. That's stressful. There might be a whole fund cycle where I don't have a winner. But what if I find the next Google, next fund? You know, you just don't know in this business. It's not a month to month Metric business it's you've got to believe that everybody has contributions to offer um, to support the team.
0: I totally agree with you, and if you look back in history and, and I think this was rooted in, very much in legacy, that you had so many firms that were tracking partner attributions and the limited partners were asking for partner by partner attribution. and I think it did create a level of toxicity within a firm where everybody was focused on their own independent contribution to fund performance versus looking at things from a team standpoint now i think things have probably changed a little bit certainly as many top firms have realized that attribution on a partner level can create a disjointed team but i do think it's still something a lot of people are challenged with
1: it's hard and and certainly when You are clearly the person who started the firm and has these wins and is driving the returns. That's great. But if you don't ever let anyone come up, then when you're done and you want to retire, like your firm will go down because the LPs won't trust anyone else on your team. The founders won't trust anyone else on your team. And that's actually a huge growing moment for each firm where it's a point of pride when someone comes in and they want to work with KJ, with Jason, with Nicole, because they know how great these partners are, you know, in our team. If everybody only wanted to work at, with Kirsten, well, she her dance card is filled, you know, she can't do twenty deals in the whole portfolio. There's going to have to be other people on the team that can attract and draw and add value. And so from the beginning, she knew that, and as a result, was was hiring for people who could add to that collective spirit. I think in the, you know, in the other examples you probably speak of, it's a little bit like, oh, I'll hire you, but like, you know, let's see if you can pull your own weight. And if you can't, you're fired. That's just such a hard place to be successful, you know, and maybe there's three fails that you have to make to be able to like win the right to get that winning deal. And you just don't know in this business when that when that moment will arise. And we always think about it too. And we think about, oh, you know, there's a team member who's leaving from this team and or or there's a there's a great CFO candidate like do I share that with my partners do I hoard it for myself I just think it's preposterous of course you share because you want all of these companies in the portfolio to be successful and if there's a better fit and that person's in Kirsten's portfolio you know on sort of a, a deal that she's leading great you know but but I I think that is a DNA thing and if the founders of the firm have a DNA where hey this is how we grew up it's it's eat what you kill Fine. There's a way to be successful with that too. Not everybody needs to be, you know, the opposite. We've just chosen to always lean on team, repeatability, scalability, you know, and and really being able to support uh, a generational firm. And hopefully, you know, I think we're doing a good job at it so far.
0: The firm obviously has done fantastic in terms of the companies you've invested in. Obviously, the reputation. And what it reminds me of is, I mean, you had this clear thesis, hey, this is going to be a multi-generational firm that's going to outlast Kirsten and myself. And when you do that, you are thinking about decision-making in a way that benefits not tomorrow, but five years from now, 10 years from now, no different than portfolio companies. If a portfolio company is looking to manage to a quarterly outcome, you're going to tend to make decisions that are short-sighted.
1: Yeah, 100%.
0: You know, every firm that I've ever been a part of or worked with always has key inflection points. Sometimes it's adverse. Sometimes it's, like you mentioned in 2016, having these exits. To really understand how firms you know have lasting powers is sometimes looking back at those key inflection points that were most transformational. If you look back nine years now and look at all the ups and downs, can you identify a few inflection points that you think are particularly impactive or were impactful for Forerunner? And maybe go into how that it transformed your thinking or perhaps the firm itself.
1: You know, what comes to mind is I remember Fund 2 was a $55 million fund to begin. We raised it fairly quickly after Fund 1. And as a result, it was similar LPs and it was a little bit of just the same thing, right? 40 to 41 to 55 is not terribly different. And I remember Kirsten was pregnant with her second child, Eva, at the time, because that's why we said, hey, instead of raising it in whatever it was, March, can we do it in December or January? Because Kirsten's going to be on maternity and we'd like to not run out of money. So there was a reason for having it a little bit earlier. But I remember having deep conversations with Kirsten at the time. We had high conviction that we needed to have a $100 million fund. And it was about, us being able to lead deals and us having enough gravitas to be able to price those rounds, to take the board seats, to do all these things. But to get the ownership, you would have needed a bigger fund and you would have needed bigger sizes. And this is, you know, again, almost 10 years ago. Now everyone still says the same stuff, but this was early to be starting to talk about the realities of portfolio modeling and portfolio sort of creation, construction. And we got a lot of pushback. Because at the time, anything close to a hundred million dollar fund was sort of starting to be not a seed fund. And there was a lot of pushback on that and And we stuck to our guns and, you know, really explained why we believed this is the right fund size for where we wanted to be in the market, where the opportunity was, and for what we were building. We had hard conversations with LPS who were questioning, You know, are you going to be able to, now you can't tuck into someone else's deal. Now you can't share deals with first round or homebrew or your other friends. Like, how's this going to work if it's you competing with everyone all of a sudden, is that going to be productive for you? And we felt very confident that we could only be successful if we grew our asset base. And that's where the market was going. And that's where our, our intention was going. And I think that was an inflection point because that was not popular at the time. Again, it's it's all the rage now to have a bigger fund, but it was really early to do that. It was a bold move and it was quick after fund one. So again, it was not necessarily that we didn't have any exits to speak of, because I would say the next inflection point was in June, June, June of 2016, we had just closed fund three, which was a $125 million fund. And we couldn't, We couldn't actually tell anyone that Dollar Shave Club was about to exit. And three weeks later, Jet.com exited. And so Fund3 investors were very happy because they made their decision without actual distributions or exits to point to. But that was then the moment of, okay, once you're a firm that has exits to speak of, tangibly, distributions, the game does change. And so then you have a different conversation with LPs versus I think Funds one, two, and three are still a lot of times on here's my vision, here's my previous track record, here are the markups. Those are all well and good, but people people all know that venture is about returning money, not just raising money. So yeah, lo- long-winded way of saying the DNA of always thinking about where is the opportunity in the market, where are we uh, where do we see the best place for foreigner to play, and then as a result, bottoms up thinking about what's the fund that we need to be able to execute on that vision that's the fund that we've raised and so fund 3 was 125 we ended up doing 75 for that second fund because we didn't want to push it all the way but we said let's do 75 and then we'll show you what we mean and then fund 3 we were able to raise the 125 and currently we're you know investing out of a 500 million dollar fund with the same premise you know we're still investing in you know the thesis that we had from the beginning but the market has changed. So unless you want Forerunner to be out of market, because we have you a know, $40 million fund competing against opportunities where the entire round is $40 million, as LPs, I think they realized, OK, we're, we're on a winning ship here. Let's continue to support uh, the strategy that the managers feel is timely for the market.
0: Yeah, it's been a very interesting market to follow. And of course, the last two years in particular, we saw a sharp downturn in March, April and May of 2020 followed by incredible froth over the next 18 months. And I know we've seen the market pull back. But can you perhaps unpack your view of what's happened over the last couple of years and then provide us a sense of how you think about navigating what continues to be an evolving funding market?
1: It's been a ride and, you know, perhaps so fast has, has the change been that there's whiplash because you just realize so much money flooding into the market It's because there's so much money being made. As a result, you're also chasing a few number of great deals. And so there's a real lopsided situation happening in the market around how many companies are coming to to bear, but the dollars are all still packing up against the real winners. And I think that has changed how we view what a great deal looks like. The bar for outcome is just higher. It's inflation across the board, right? All the rounds are bigger, but all the outcomes are bigger as well, or the expectations for outcomes are bigger as well. And I think what you realize is that we're in this mode or generational stage where market winners are being made. And you need enough momentum to own a market, but at a certain point, you get there. And at that point, it does become a multiple tens of billions of dollar business um, which is then it, it sort of makes everything worth it up until then. And I think the danger that happens is everyone just assumes, well, if if we don't do this round, then we might miss it. And if this is the winner, then we're out of this like massive winner that we all need to be a part of. And I think many of the larger firms, given their fund sizes, they have to be whale hunting and so it's worth it to them to put in, you know, 10 million dollar seed checks no matter what just to have a seat at the table in case something is a breakaway. It makes it really difficult for normal sized funds, you know, anything under a billion where you still are um trying to maintain discipline in your portfolio, trying to maintain ownership, trying to actually look for traction, but if there's always somebody who's willing to throw in money with no numbers, it makes it very difficult. I understand both sides because for the people who are doing that, a toehold in something at some random 100 million dollar valuation, it doesn't matter to them. But to the seed fund who's trying to get a 10 post, good luck. Those days are long gone. I remember when I I've had several deals at 6 or 7 post back in the day, and that was, you know, that was a high deal for where it was. So, so I think we've just learned to be cautiously optimistic. You know, we're still in the game because we don't think it's smart to be out when there's so many market makers sort of rising to the to the occasion today. But we try to be disciplined around the realities of, is this the team and the concept that we think is going to win? And if so, where's the right place to get in? And maybe then we, we have to give up on ownership or we can't get our full dollars or whatever those portfolio dynamics are. And we just trust that as we prove our value add and build our, you know, relationships, that we'll be able to put more dollars in over time. Um, but it is requiring everybody to behave differently. I think the founders are really overwhelmed too, because the relationship that you get into with your investors is literally there was somebody who tweeted, um, the average venture founder relationship is like seven years and the average marriage in the US is like five or six. So you really are getting involved in into a, a very intimate relationship. And I think what people realize is it's not all good. It's the up and the down. And you've made no vows to each other for, you know, sickness and health, better or worse. Like that's what you're getting involved in. But that's not what people realize when they're throwing ter- term sheets and signing term sheets. And they don't even know who these people are that they're backing. We've had a great year. We've seen amazing founders and companies um, come to life we look at our portfolio and we're excited about all the themes that we see there's a lot of commerce en- enablement there's a lot of empowering technologies both for creators as well as businesses and um, there's a lot in you know evolving healthcare um, so just a- an incredible amount of growth but it is a very enthusiastic time and you know we'll see next year how that pans out cuz all of these companies are then going to need follow-on funding and you know we'll see
0: I totally agree that it's an enthusiastic time in the last couple months, notwithstanding. There's still a ton of dry powder. There's a lot of capital that's being raised. A lot of that capital is being raised by the mega funds that are raising one, two, five, 10, $20 billion in one go. And my question around fund managers that aren't those big global brands is how to competitively position, given that you know, for a lot of the big funds, when they do go upstream and invest at, let's call it the series A or series B, even, it's small option checks, and it's effectively a freemium model. And if that initial check investment doesn't go well, um, they can simply not follow on. And it makes no difference to the ultimate fund return. It's it's just a rounding error. But, you know, for a smaller manager, those things obviously matter. And I know you're investing now out of a a much bigger fund that's a billion dollars but as you think about fund managers that are sub a billion and more likely actually sub $500 million, what is the way that fund managers should think about competing when many of these large players can apply valuations at the early stages that are one and a half, two 2 2x with maybe an early stage fund that's much smaller can actually apply?
1: It's really a case-by-case basis because there are times where you... We do our diligence and market research in advance. And so hopefully when we see something, we already have a perspective on where we think the angle is. And if there's a founding team that's exceptional and uniquely qualified to tackle this particular um, opportunity, we we can move quickly. We also have a range of what makes sense. At a certain point, if it literally doesn't make any sense and we're just, it's, it's a hope in a bottle and... The only way that there's another round is that somebody else comes in and puts in a crazy term sheet that is not rooted in any logic. That's not a place we like to be. We talk to the founders. We help them understand why we're getting to the numbers we're getting to, um, how far we can stretch within reason. And then ultimately, if they want to go with the, quote, crazy deal, that's okay. We'll still re- maintain the relationship and we'll see you on the other side. Because if you did what you think you're going to do, then maybe that deal will look like a like a value deal eight months from now or 10 months from now. But if you didn't hit it, you're going to have a down round. And so we'll be here. And I think that, you know, you just have to do the analysis and have a framework of thinking where even if you still decide you're going to do a moonshot deal, that our partnership will say, okay, within the framework, it either checks out as logical or it checks out as not logical and you still want to do it. And here's why. Because there's always that moment where you might have in your gut, you know what, we just have to do this. And the number doesn't even matter because if we miss this deal and it has 1% chance of working, we're going to regret it because it's going to be that exceptional. And there was one where I think I saw, um, was Kanye the podcast that came out yesterday or this morning? I didn't have a chance to listen to it yet, but very, very close friends with him and um, in a deal with him where if things work, it's literally the next trillion dollar company in the next 10 years. So there's no ownership to speak of. There's no squabbling over how much did we get? Did we not get? It was whatever we could get. And that's not standard portfolio management, but it's a... It's a deal of consequence that is just potentially like a a once-in-a-lifetime situation. So you just got to be flexible.
0: Yeah, and, and you have to have these qualitative mental models to be able to assess when you make those exceptions. And even though it may not be rational from a pure numbers standpoint, you're still thinking about what this actually can mean for Forerunner as a fund, as a brand. And I think, you know, you mentioned Kanye, I think he's incredibly thoughtful when it comes to Thinking about things in a multivariate fashion, and you know, being able to make those decisions that are second-order decisions that ultimately aren't so prescriptive of this is the only thing it has to be for us to invest.
1: That's one thing I I teach um, on our team, our analysts. Just venture is about having a having an opinion and knowing why and sticking to it because you have no information half the time. You can look for traction, but good luck. What does it mean? And if it's already upwards and hockey stick and whatever, okay, fine. I mean, that's not exactly venture because it's already proven out. And so then that's a different stage of investing, which also you can be a great growth investor or later stage investor as a result of that. But I think that always having a framework for what, why am I doing this? And is it on track or not? You know, Is it in the framework or is it not in the framework? If it's not in the framework, then why do I still want to do it? And when you can do that for yourself and you can do that for your partners and you can do that for your LPs, then you find that it does give you much more confidence in um, just always remembering like why are we here? So when it goes sideways and everyone's like, hey Yuri, why do we do that deal? I say, you know what? At the time, this is what was true and this is why we did it. And I still believe in it. Even though it's going sideways, I think it's gonna come back. And you may or may not be right, but I think that's where the venture stories are made when it's like, oh my God, it almost went out of business seven times and then now it's IPOing for, you know, $10 billion.
0: Well, it's it's having conviction in your decision-making process, and it's not actually too different and dissimilar from LPs that are investing in emerging managers and the the folks that made the initial bets in 2012. There wasn't this long history of, hey, this is going to work, and these are the right people because they've done this over 20 years. There's a leap of faith that's qualitative, that's based on a mental model, that something that you're doing is going to provide a long-term superior consequence when it comes to returns or relationships. And so I love that mental model. Final question. What is the most transformative or impactful career advice that you've ever received?
1: My father, my late father, he passed away in 20, uh, 2009. Uh, he, he would always tell me to be ready. That's like a fortune cookie. I mean, literally it's like, be ready for what dad, what are you talking about? There was nothing more. He just kept on just be ready, be ready. And I think now, you know, in my 40s, looking back, it's true. You have to be ready for all things. You have to be ready for, you know, an opportunity to come and to be ready to say, yes, I'm going to throw you a term sheet right now because, like, I've already done all the diligence and I'm ready. There's an opportunity to, you know, uh, meet somebody that you're going to hire. There's an opportunity to learn something new. But ultimately, we're in the world of opportunistic moments. And it's hard to figure out how you're ready for everything, but it's, it's a mentality. It's being open to the possibilities and to not focus on all the ways something could go wrong, but rather what's the one or two things that need to go right for something to be worth it. And I've, I've really, uh, I've really lived that advice since, you know, since the last 10 years of being in venture. Um, and I think it's an important one for for all of us to realize, because like, be ready tomorrow, there could be a pandemic tomorrow, the market could crash, like so many things could happen. And you just want to be proud of what you're doing and how you're doing it, no matter what the circumstances are.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how our parents uh, is, is little credit we gave them when we were growing <laughs> up. <laughs> Such totally. great pieces of advice. And that and that definitely is a sage piece of advice. Yuri, this has been a lot of fun. I've I've had so much fun tracking the firm over the years. Thanks so much for being on and congrats on all the success this far.
1: Thank you so much and congrats to you too.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Yuri. To learn more about her or Forerunner ventures, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.